If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in Mark chapter 6, going through the first six verses of that chapter. We're continuing our series going through the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in that uh, until Easter, then we'll take a short break uh, to do a more topical series over something I think you guys will really enjoy. So uh, Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6, just continuing our series going through the Gospel of Mark this morning before we take communion. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Why don't people know that Clark Kent is Superman? Or we could phrase that the other way, right? Why don't people understand that Superman is Clark Kent? People have been asking that same question How do people not figure this out? How do they not put it together since Superman was created in 1938? And comic book writers, the people who came up with Superman, the people who have continued to write this character over the years, have always had answers to this question. They've always had to come up with some way to answer that. In the beginning, for a long time, the answer was simple enough. Well, he wears a disguise. Superman has a big, bright costume with an S on it. Clark Kent just wears a shirt and a sport coat. Superman doesn't have glasses. Clark Kent does. They can't be the same person. He's wearing a disguise. And that worked for a long time. But the question kept coming back. Everyone who reads the comic eventually says, you know what? Superman's a pretty big deal. And he looks a lot like that Clark Kent guy. Why don't they put this together? So the the best answer that I've heard is the most recent answer. And it's tying back to psychology. They say that no one puts together that Clark Kent is Superman because no one expects to see Superman as anything other than Superman. When they see Superman and then see Clark Kent, it never even dawns on them to think, oh, they actually do look a lot alike because Clark Kent's just some guy. He could move in next door to them, and their first thought wouldn't be, oh, I bet Superman just moved in next door. They would say, oh, that was just some man. I saw him get in an elevator. There's no way Superman is getting in an elevator in my building on my floor and waiting around for it to go up and down through the building. There's no chance. It breaks our brains to try to think that someone who is like Superman could also be someone who is like Clark Kent. And honestly, that is what's happening in the text that we have this morning. For the Nazarenes, the people who in this text rejected Jesus, they're doing so because it never occurred to them that God could be standing before them. They had no frame of reference for understanding that the man who is teaching them, who is reading to them, who had grown up among them, that he could possibly be God in the flesh. It's for those reasons and five reasons that we will see in our text this morning why we reject Jesus. 
From these short verses, we can see five reasons why the Nazarenes reject Jesus, and those five reasons, I think, still hold true today for why people tend to reject Jesus. First of all, we are astonished, but we are not convinced. Look at the first two verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished. You see, they heard what he said, and just as with everywhere else he went, the people marveled at his teaching. All who heard him were astonished. This was new teaching of the old scriptures, but it had authority. It was different. They were astonished at what they heard. They were helpless in the face of this. You see, astonishment is involuntary. It's like shock. You can't choose to be shocked. You simply are shocked. You simply are astonished. It's something that happens to you. They had no choice other than being astonished. But astonishment is often momentary. We're astonished for a second, for just a few moments, and then it moves on. It's shallow. If astonishment is all we have, we don't stay there. It's like a drug high. We don't often get astonished in the same way, in the same place, to the same extent, twice. We have to have more. We have to have different. We have to have something else. But our astonishment shouldn't leave us with simply just astonishment. We shouldn't just stay there. Rather than slowly coming down from our astonishment, we should move on to study, to belief, to being convinced rather than merely astonished. That which once astonished us should move on to convincing us. But they were not convinced of his teaching. We can see that from the rest of these verses, right? They they immediately moved on from their astonishment to questioning, to disbelief, to skepticism. They were astonished involuntarily, but they were not convinced by what they heard. They didn't believe and continue to listen They spoke. They only questioned. We should move from our astonishment to being convinced by his teaching. We should press into that teaching. We shouldn't merely be astonished or move from that astonishment to questioning the one who astonished us. See, we often tend to reject Jesus because while we may marvel at what we hear, while we may be astonished at what he says, we aren't convinced by it. It hasn't taken root in us. We hear it and we say, yeah, that was cool. I heard that. Great. What else you got for me? Astonish me again. We reject Jesus oftentimes because while we are astonished, we are not convinced. But we also reject Jesus because we tend to think according to the flesh. That's the second reason in our text this morning. That was the problem for the Nazarenes. It's similarly the problem for us. We reject Jesus because we think according to the flesh. They said, Where did this man get these things? We think according to what we see rather than what simply is. From where did this man get these things? They had no concept for anything other than what they could see, what they could touch, what they didn't already know. They rejected the spiritual aspect of what they heard. They saw a man standing before them and they said, where did he get this? I don't see the scroll that he's reading from. I don't see the school that he went to. Where did this knowledge come from? They didn't know where it came from, so they rejected him and his teaching. And we today are all too like them. 
we forget what Scripture tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You see, there is a spiritual dimension, a supernatural dimension to every aspect of our lives. When we encounter opposition, when we're tempted, when we're tried, when we encounter conflict, we aren't merely dealing with the things that we see. We aren't merely dealing with the people in front of us. We're dealing with spiritual forces at work. And we today, in our modern mindset, tend to reject that. I know for me, particularly, I fall into this way too much. My simplest explanation is always the least supernatural explanation. Okay? You didn't get a flat car on the way to work, a flat tire on the way to work because there was a demon. You got a flat tire on the way to work because you ran over a nail. And maybe that's true. But we can't wholly deny the supernatural aspect of our lives. We as Christians particularly should not deny the supernatural aspect of our lives. We have pretty clear texts that tell us that we should acknowledge that there is more at play. There is more behind what we see than merely what we see. And that's the reason why the Nazarenes were rejecting Jesus in this verse. Their anti-spiritual mindset caused them to reject him. They were thinking only according to the flesh. From where did this man get these things? But they were also thinking of him merely as a man rather than as God. From where did this man get these things? You see, they weren't simply denying anything that was supernatural. They were denying that he was supernatural. That there was anything more to him than what met the eye. They rejected him as God because they were seeing him in his flesh. And throughout church history, this has often been the struggle for people. Even people who would claim to be Christians. Our problem what has led to the most heresies, what has led to the worst doctrines that we've ever read, the worst heretics that we've ever encountered in church history, we always fall into one ditch or the other. That we either emphasize Jesus' divinity, his godhood to the point where we say, you know what, he was so God that he wasn't actually a man. Or we fall off the horse on the other side. We say he was such a man that he was just a man. He couldn't also be God. We fail to see that he is God in the flesh. He is the God-man. He is not merely one or the other. We cannot, when we look at Jesus, think of him as only a man. And we cannot, when we look at Jesus, think of him only as God. Because he is both. He is truly God and truly man. The official definition of the church that we've had for centuries for this idea, when it tries to explain this, says he is of the same essence as the Father according to his deity. He is the same essence as God. And he is of the same essence with us according to his humanity. He's like us in all things except sin. The same essence as God and the same essence as man. He is both God and man. They are united in one singular person of Jesus Christ without any mixture, without either nature being taken over by the other. He is God and man. But these people in this text see the man but reject that he's God because they thought about him according to the flesh. They said that he can't be God. 
Paul even talks about this idea in 2 Corinthians 5.16, writing to the Corinthians and saying, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. He's trying to get them to emphasize that when you see a person in front of you, you cannot think of them as merely flesh and blood. You have to think of them as a person with a soul, a person with a life, a being. There's a supernatural element to everything we see, even down to the people in front of us. And even more so, we should acknowledge and accept that when we think about Christ, that when we see him as a man, when we see him eat, sleep, die, he does so as a man, but he does not do so merely as a man. He also does that as God. We have to acknowledge that he is God even as he is man. This is the core rejection this morning that they have. They look at him and they say, nope, that is a man. That's a guy. That's Clark Kent. That's not Superman. That's all he can be. We tend to think of Jesus as merely a man, but we have to always remember that he is the God-man. The third reason in our text this morning that we tend to reject Jesus is because we think according to our own wisdom. What is the wisdom given to him? It says in verse 2. So we're doubting the wisdom that we hear, all right? What is the wisdom that is given to him? They say, what, what even is this? What is he saying? What is his teaching? That same teaching that had just astonished them was what now they were questioning. They had just marveled at it, and now they said, ah, I don't know about this whole teaching thing. I don't know about this wisdom. This Jesus guy, he's got some crazy ideas. I don't know that I want to believe him. They had just been astonished, and they immediately moved on from astonishment into questioning that which astonished them. How fickle we as humans can often be. But they didn't just doubt the wisdom that they heard. They doubted where the wisdom came from. See, more than just doubting the teaching itself, they were doubting the teacher himself. What is the wisdom given to him? They didn't think he could possibly be teaching out of himself. They didn't think he possibly could have known all of the things that he said in himself, that he could possibly be God in himself, revealing himself to his people right then and there by teaching them. And they didn't know where that teaching could have come from. What is this wisdom that's given to him? Where did it come from? Again, they doubted that he could be God. If the wisdom has to be given to him, he can't just have it within himself. He, he can't just be someone who has this knowledge and speaks with this authority out of himself. It has to be given to him because th this is just a man. He can't have this. Somebody had to give this to him. And they kept going down that road. If someone gave this to him, what even is it? What does that mean? Where did it come from? If it must have come from somewhere, we don't know where that somewhere is, I reject this. I don't know what it is. I don't know where it came from. I don't believe this guy, so I'm not listening anymore. We doubt it. They said prophets are pretty rare. You know, we haven't had one for a long time. So the odds are this guy in front of us, he's probably not getting his stuff from God. He's getting it from somewhere else. They rejected where the wisdom came from. Right? Notice how silly all this unbelief actually ends up making them look. They were thinking according to their own wisdom, according to their own understanding, rather than acknowledging the good and perfect wisdom which had come to them from God. He had taught, and they marveled. He had authority, and they were astonished. 
And then, so quickly, these backwoods bumpkins in Nazareth said, you know what? I, I don't believe this. I think I know more than this guy. I don't trust him. Yeah, the, the teaching astonished us, but we're past that now. So we're, we're, we each got over it. Yeah, the teaching seems to have authority, but that can't just come from this guy standing here. So maybe it came from some other source, but that source can't be God. It can't be the one we worship. It can't be the one who reveals himself to his people from the mouths of prophets just like this. All their thoughts, all their ideas landed them in the exact wrong place. The more they thought, the more they thought they understood, the more in their own wisdom they trusted, the farther from the truth they got. All of what they thought to be wisdom amounted only to foolishness. And this is how God tends to work, isn't it? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 25 through 27 says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So often, when God works, he takes that which we think to be foolish and reveals his own wisdom in and through it. He sent himself to die as a man on a cross. A symbol of foolishness. A symbol of shame. Something that anyone else would have been completely and totally despised, unclean, cast out, cursed. That's how he chose to save his people. Not only that, he continues to do that. He called us, right? Any God who looks at someone like me and says, that's the guy that I want to not only save, but call to lead a church, to help these people, to serve and love them. We would look at that and say that's foolishness. That I should have been doing something else. But he's chosen that which is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He takes that which we think to be wise and he shows it to be foolishness. He takes that which we think to be foolish and he shows that to be wise. We reject Christ when we think according to our own wisdom rather than trusting his Rather than leaning into his teaching, pressing into it, that which astonished us, continuing through to understanding that it is true, causes us to reject Jesus. The fourth reason we tend to reject Jesus from our text today, we're still in verse 2, is because we think according to our own power. They asked, how are such mighty works done by his hands? See, they were doubting his works. They were doubting the legitimacy of his works. They said, how are such mighty works done by his hands? You see, word of who he is and what he had been doing had to have come with him to Nazareth, right? His disciples came with him. He had healed people. He had brought people back from the dead. He had healed leprosy. He had cast out demons. He had done all these great miracles. So whenever he shows up with his disciples, with his posse, he walks in and everybody understands who he is. They've heard about what he's done. Surely there was a buzz, rumors about him calming a storm, healing the sick, casting out demons. But now that he was standing in front of them, they said, is this it? This isn't that impressive. 
That's just some guy. He's just standing there. It's kind of cloudy today. He didn't tell them to get out of the way. Maybe he didn't even do all this. Maybe all these works were a, a sham. I bet he didn't even do it all. The storm probably just stopped roughly around the time he woke up and people just decided to make it into a story. The, the, the sick people, the demon-possessed guys, they were audience plants. He didn't actually do that to them. I saw the same thing the other day on Good Morning Israel. There was a guy who said the birthday of everybody in the front row, and then he put a cigarette through a denarii. Big deal. They didn't believe the legitimacy of his works. They didn't think he actually could be doing these things. They doubted his works themselves, but they continued to doubt his power to work. They were doubting his capacity, not just his legitimacy. How are such mighty works done by his hands? How are such mighty works done by this guy? I could possibly believe it by someone else, some other situation, some other place, someone who seems to be more impressive, but not this guy. He's just standing there. We know him. We keep coming back to their core rejection. They're doubting that this man in front of them is God. They think he's just a man. And the more they think about it in their own wisdom, the less impressed, they, less impressed with him they actually are. They think, no, not only is he just a man, he's kind of a lame man. He's just there. He's not even really doing that much. No way does he have the power to do that stuff. Just look at him. One of my favorite uh, sports oddities is Tom Brady. Not because of the, the guy. I kind of always hated him until he now is retired, and I can now affirm and respect that he is the greatest NFL quarterback of all time because now I don't have to worry about him anymore. He's gone. But he was the 199th pick in his draft class. People looked at all of these athletes and said, I would rather have 198 of these guys than this one who's the best person to ever do it. And they did that because if you saw Tom Brady back then when he was being drafted, you would have done the same thing. Okay, there's a famous picture of him at the NFL Combine where he went to train, where he was showcasing himself to the teams that were going to draft him, and he's standing there shirtless and in some shorts, and he doesn't look like a football player. Not even close. It's almost like a prank. It's like someone's brother snuck in and took a picture. It would be roughly like me standing there, hoping that a team is going to draft me to be their quarterback. No one looks at him and thinks, this guy has what it takes. This is the greatest one to ever do it. Yeah, Tom Brady is just a man. He's not God. Not even close. But when we look at him from the outward appearance, we're not really that impressed by him, even as a man. So were the Nazarenes. Not only were they denying his divinity, they were saying, even as a man, big deal. Because they thought they knew him. They thought they had him pegged. That's the fifth reason that we tend to reject Jesus from our text this morning. Verse 3. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. See, they thought they knew him. That's why they rejected him. They doubted that there was any more to him than what met the eye. Any more to him than what they already knew. They said, wait, 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 isn't this just the carpenter? That's his family right there. 
Aren't they still here, just down the road? We know him already. He was in my brother's class at Nazareth High. He's just some guy. We already know him. He can't shock us. They thought they already had a full picture of who he was, so they rejected any new information about him. They rejected the wisdom that they hadn't seen or heard before. They rejected that he could possibly be going about doing miracles. They remained unconvinced even by that which astonished them. What they thought they knew had only inoculated them from the truth. Like a truth vaccine, they had a little bit of it, just enough so that whenever it came along, they could fight it off. They knew just enough about who he was to think that he couldn't possibly be any more than what they saw, any more than what they already knew. And of all the rejections in our text this morning, I think this is the one that we are probably the most susceptible to. That we think we know. We think we already have a truth, a knowledge about him. So we reject anything more than we could possibly have heard. Right? We live in America. We hear about God all the time. We live in the Bible Belt. Yeah, the belt may be loosening over time, but it's still there. You can't scroll through Facebook without seeing 12 people say something generically about God, something generically about Jesus, maybe even saying that Jesus is particularly for this political party or that one. We encounter some kind of possible truth about who God is all the time. We're familiar with him. But what I'm afraid of is that our familiarity is only keeping us from truly knowing him. Only keeping us from truly seeing who he is in scripture, in the truth. Rather than merely being inoculated from the truth, pressing into it, learning it, knowing it, be changed by it. J.C. Ryle, in commenting on this same section of Scripture, said, It is an awful truth that in religion, more than anything else, familiarity breeds contempt. The more we know, the more likely it is that we reject anything else. The more likely it is that we think that we know everything. And for whatever reason, that tends to be true in religion more than anything else. We begin to hold him in contempt when we are confronted with new information, new revelation about him from Scripture, because we doubt there's anything more to him than what we already know. They took offense at him at the end of this, this verse. They weren't just asking the questions with the hope to know. They were asking the questions with a point. They were asking the questions ending in some kind of contempt, some kind of anger, you today have not plumbed the depths of your God. You will not plumb the depths of your God. There is always more to know. There's always more to learn. There's always more to see. There's always more to be changed by. He is infinite and incomprehensible. So keep trying to comprehend and know that you're never going to get the bottom. Keep going. Don't let your familiarity breed contempt. Continue to learn. Continue to grow. Lean into him and his gospel. Because that fountain will never run dry. Don't take offense at him when he shows more of himself to you. Don't reject him because you think you already know him. 
Don't reject him because you've only been inoculated to the truth of who he actually is. Those are the five reasons from this text that we can reject Jesus today, just like they did then. But we can't end there. We have to see the consequences of this, right? That the text doesn't end in verse 3. It continues going on, verses 4 through 6. So from there, we can see three consequences of rejecting Jesus. What happened in this story? What tends to happen when he gets rejected? First of all, he does not work where there is no belief. Verse 5, he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Christ will not work where there is no belief. Their unbelief is what kept him from working. We can see that in in verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief. That their unbelief is actually what's keeping him from working in this text, in this story. Just as last week in our series in Mark, we discussed that both daughters had been healed and helped because of belief. That they had not only to fear, but only to believe. That she could go forth in peace because her faith had made her well. Where there is no belief, Christ does not work. Now, we have to be careful here. We have to be clear here that if we are not careful, we could fall into a place where we say that Christ doesn't have the power to work where there's no belief. We don't want to say that because I don't think that's what the text is saying. The text is not saying that Jesus didn't have the power to work. He's all-powerful. He can do what he wants. But he has decided, he has chosen That when he works in the lives of his people, when he works in creation, he uses faith as the means through which he works. He works where there is faith, and where there is not faith, he tends not to work. Though he certainly has the power to work when and where he wants, he doesn't work where there's no faith. So due to their unbelief, Christ could do no mighty works there. Now that's got to be a warning to us, right? We who pray... We who ask God to work, to do so mightily, that we should do so in faith. We shouldn't do so without belief. We should do so in belief. Rejecting Christ often keeps him from doing mighty works. It also causes him to marvel at our obstinance. It's the second consequence of rejecting Christ. It causes him to marvel. Though he'd already done so many great things, though he taught them with his wisdom, and though he had astonished them, they still didn't believe. They still didn't believe. They met all the evidence. They saw him face to face, and they still rejected him. So it caused Christ to marvel. He said, what's it going to take? He was doing so in his flesh. God isn't surprised that they were rejecting him. But in some sense, Christ was astonished at their lack of belief. He said, what more do you want? What more do you need? I've given you more than enough to believe. And rather than believing, you're only rejecting. So he marvels. This is not a good marvel. He's astonished at the lack of belief around him, which causes him to move on. End of verse 6. He marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. This rejection, this lack of belief, eventually causes Christ to just move on. He continues to work. He continues to teach, to heal, to save. He does his work that he was sent here to do, but he does that somewhere else. He doesn't stay in Nazareth. He gets rejected and he moves on. Through some other means, in some other place, he will accomplish his work, but not there, not among those people. 
You see, we often reject Christ, and when we do so, we think that he's the one who's being rejected. We think it's his loss because we aren't believing in who he is and what he's done. But he doesn't need you. He doesn't even almost need you. He doesn't need me. He's not a God who is served by human hands as though he needs anything. But he himself gives to all things life and breath and everything. He doesn't need you. So when you reject him, he's not the one who gets rejected. You are. He's not the one who's worse off. You are. When we reject Christ and he moves on, it's not his loss. It's ours. We don't deserve his grace, his mercy, or his presence. He doesn't have to offer them to us. So when we reject him, he marvels at our lack of belief, he moves on, and he does no mighty work among us. That tends to be how he works. Now he is patient, he continues to offer himself over and over throughout our lives. But he doesn't owe you anything. He doesn't owe you another chance to believe him. He doesn't owe you another opportunity to submit your life to him. If he were to move on, he would be just to do so. So don't let him move on today. Don't reject him today, but accept him. You see, someone much greater than Superman has actually come, actually lived a life in the flesh for your salvation. So you should be convinced rather than merely astonished by that truth today. Don't just think of this Jesus according to the flesh as if he's just some man, according to your flesh or to his. Don't just think of him according to your wisdom. Don't just think of him according to your understanding of power. Don't let whatever familiarity you may have with him breed contempt for him. Don't cause him to move on. Don't cause him to not do a mighty work in and through you. Don't cause him to marvel at your lack of belief. Don't reject him, but instead accept him. And then having accepted him, worship him, glorify him for the rest of your days. Be there at the final feast of the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we are about to foreshadow when we take the Lord's Supper. You have that opportunity today, and I hope that you'll take it. I hope you'll accept him rather than reject him. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to accept you rather than reject you. Thank you for coming, for revealing yourself to us, for astonishing us with your teaching, with your words, with your power, your might, your works. Help for us to see you better and to know you more. To think of you as both God and man. To trust that there is something supernatural happening in our lives and that that is all by your plan, by your power, by your work. Help for us to not be so familiar with you that we think that we already know everything there is to know. Help for us to press in, to know more, to be more, to trust more. We believe, but help our unbelief. Save us and reveal yourself to us today.
In Jesus' name we pray, amen.